Hello everyone, I am Rafaela Tanconi and this is our Off Balance podcast series, Turning Maternity Penalty into a Career Dividend. Uh, good morning everyone, welcome to our podcast. My name is Joanna Kalmer and I am talking to... Rafaela Tanconi. That's right. My lovely friend, Rafaela Tanconi, who I've known for a very long time, we met when she was working in the city as a very successful economist, a career woman. And today uh, she asked me to talk to her about motherhood and her experience of motherhood and what it does to her career and what she learned from it. I have to say, Rafi, when you asked me, I loved the fact that you wanted me to talk to you about something I have absolutely no idea about because you are a mother and I'm not. <laughs> so I thought, you know, I, I love the fact you believe in me, but this one might be a bit of a stretch. But then I thought maybe this is actually a good idea because we come to this conversation with a very different experience. And maybe this is what is going to make it interesting. So why did you want me to talk to you about motherhood? Well, Joanna, first of all, we have known each other now for at least a decade. You are incredible. I mean, you're a phenomenal portfolio manager at Ashmore. You're like incredibly shrewd trader and, and so smart. So, and so lovely. So, I mean, motherhood is incredibly precious to me. So I wanted to talk to somebody that uh, was close to me, but also somebody that is, you know, is really tuned on and is going to ask the difficult questions because, because motherhood, it's somehow one of the things that frustrates you is that you're downgraded to some kind of second class citizen as if it's a, it's a simple thing and, it, and in reality is not at all. So I asked you for, for a mixture of reasons and, uh, and I quite like the fact that you, you know, you're not a mother because you can ask all sorts of different questions in mind. So I think this, the plan is to have a candid conversation about something that is very complex because I think that's the way it should be. Okay. Yes, I, I, I understand. This is really something I find interesting too. So let's start from talking about you before the baby. I already mentioned that you were successful, you were an economist, but tell us a little bit more about you. What, what, what did you perceive your life was like before the baby? Well, so before 2015, I was a happy single banker with my flat in London on the Thames. I mean, it was lovely. You know, I travel around, I did as I pleased, I had all of these very uh, interesting conversations around the world. And you know what? Uh, around that date, uh, Candace Browning, who's the head of BAML, asked us to write a report about women, right? And I so distinctly remember that request as perhaps the one that I hated the most <laughs> when I was at BAML, because I thought, you know what, what kind of stupid idea is to single out women? Women can make it on their own. They don't, we don't need to be labeled separately. So, so that's who I was before 2015. Okay. And did you feel like you were happy and successful? Yeah, absolutely. But at the back of your mind, uh, have you always thought that at some point all this has to end because you will have a baby? Or um, how did you think about having a baby going forward? Was it a, a, a part of your successful life so far? Or was it just something that would alter things dramatically? How, how did you understand this might work? Actually, by the time I left BAML, because I had decided to set up my own business, uh, so in 2015, I wasn't looking for kids anymore. All of my life, I thought I would be a very young mother. And I almost became, because I, I think around 20 and some change, I did get pregnant. Uh, but after that, the occasion never arose. And while I was working, I could not get pregnant, even though I was in a stable relationship. So 
kids were not part of my plan at that point. And I didn't think it would make me any less successful because I didn't have them. It was just it's something that had not happened at that time. But you felt that if children came along, they would basically seamlessly integrate into your life rather than destroy it. Yes. Yes, that was indeed the assumption that somehow they would fit in. <laughs> right. And, and how do you feel about the assumption now? Uh, well, they did fit in. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it's nothing short of a calamity. It's a financial calamity. It's an organizational <laughs> destruction. <laughs> and, 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 and perhaps as a, as, as a good note to put in here, I mean, none of the, the real challenges uh, that exist, financial or otherwise, come close to really explain or offset the joy that you get from having kids. You cannot explain what it is to have a little baby in your arms. It's just very difficult to explain. So I, would, I don't want anybody listening to this chat thinking, oh, this is going to be part of some kind of equation that I need to figure out on whether I want to have kids or not. I think either mother nature sends them your way in whatever form they come, or it doesn't. That's it. You take it, you take it as it comes. You cannot do anything more uh, on the process of in or out. You can certainly do a lot more than what I did in terms of planning um, the arrival. Right. Wow, wow, wow. Calamity, you know, that, that does not leave much room for maneuver here. <laughs> okay, so, so let me just think about it. So uh, obviously it's, it completely uh, changes your priorities, your routine, what you can do, what you cannot do. But do you think you can maybe describe it a little bit more in detail in terms of what it did to your career? How, how it really impacted it? Well, so, so I guess, first of all, let's, let's be a bit specific about my situation, which is, it's fairly unusual on many levels. Because, so in, tw in spring of 2015, I had decided to leave Bank of America and set up my own company. And I was in gardening leave when I discovered I got pregnant. So I first had to take a decision on whether to carry on with the plan or kind of go back to my employer and beg them to, to have me back. Uh, I didn't. I thought, you know, I had made the decision. I wanted to be an entrepreneur at that stage. I will handle maternity just like any other complexity of, of the transition. And of course, being independent gives you a certain flexibility that a lot of other people don't have because you can manage your schedule, you can outsource work. It doesn't give you the protection of maternity leave, which makes it more financially taxing. But depending on what is your character, for me, freedom over finance uh, was the more important thing for psychological equilibrium so so it worked for me but you know as as I was thinking back the, the two emotions that strike me about the first the first couple of years okay so between you get pregnant so you're preparing for labor and then you have the little baby never sleeps that kind of phase right so there are two emotions that really come across. One is frustration because you are like any other citizen up until you say to people that you're pregnant. Then all of a sudden you're automatically placed into a glass cage because initially people take you as too fragile all of a sudden. Then uh, as if you don't have any interest other than kids then they show into whatever interest you may have, it's certainly not good enough because you're only doing kids. And then, and then you're just, you know, time passes, you're increasingly exhausted and therefore you cannot be at your best. So there is an enormous amount of frustration that you're hit with that you just, you know, it wasn't in the book on maternity. 
on page one. And, the, and of course, the other one is exhaustion. And, and it really happens after labor because the little creature doesn't sleep. It doesn't matter how many books on sleep training you take and read and try to address them. Um, babies' biology is such that for years, they don't sleep. And so if you have one, that means maybe two years without sleep. If you have multiple ones, you know, multiply that. Uh, it means you're physically exhausted. Your memory goes down the drain. You can't remember anything. I mean, literally anything. And then all of a sudden, you know, your emotions go all over the place because you're increasingly tired. You're short-tempered and, you know, frustration escalates everywhere. So, I mean, that's why I said it's nothing short of a calamity. So this is, this is the first difficult question, at least from my point of view, because on one hand, I hear that there is, there is an impact on you. It's, it's factual, right? You can't sleep, memory loss, um, exhausted. Basically, in short, what I hear is you can't perform at the same standards uh, as before. On the other hand, I hear that you become stripped of your identity. No one thinks of you as an economist anymore, as a professional, as anyone with any sort of skills or talents. They just see you as this carer for a baby who is operating at, you know, half capacity maybe. Yeah. This, is, this is difficult, right? Because on one, hand, I, on one hand, I hear from you that it's factual that, that you are not at full capacity. On the other hand, it's painful that the world sees you uh, as not you anymore. So th this is difficult. Like, do you think that the world, i.e. the bosses, um, have a point by thinking, you know, a woman who just had a baby uh, will never perform as well? There is a point in maternity leave. There is certainly a point in paternity leave as well, because, I mean, of course, this talk is very much about women, but, you know, spouses are there. So, so certainly it's a necessity to create a certain buffer around this phase that is very delicate because it's, it's genuine. You, mean you, you are less performing for a certain period of time. Uh, but that's only one part. And, and it is also the, the overtime effect. I mean, so, so let's, let's sidestep a little bit because at the end of the day, as you, as you rightly said, I mean, I am an economist. It incredibly pissed me off that, that people thought that just because I was pregnant or just had a baby of some kind of less economist than before. And, uh, and I live and breathe numbers. So even in this experience, I spontaneously draw parallels with the economy and, and statistics. So I, the most important statistics I want everybody to know is that less than one third of first time mothers go back to full time employment. Uh, less, you know, one fifth of them will leave the workforce completely by the fifth year. And, and I've I've learned to respect statistics. If sometimes repeat with such a strong pattern, there is something mag magical about it. And since I am in my fifth year, I understand what is so magical about fifth year now, which is, which is really physical exhaustion. I mean, you can, you can handle the first phase because your body is full of hormones, uh, but then as time progresses, exhaustion really takes over. And, and at some point, it becomes almost uh, uncurable, mm -hmm. right? Now, this is a really stupid situation to be in in this historical time because it turns out that women are by now the most, increasingly the most skilled part of the workforce. We train women at the highest level of education more so than any point in time. We have more women in engineering, STEM, heart sciences, and men in 
most of Europe, uh, US. So to destroy all of this talent for something that is biologically natural, it's really a bad way of organizing, uh, of organizing society. So I think the issue is that if we don't openly talk about the process, all of it, the biology, the emotions, and the policy adjustment, I don't think we are going to solve this because there is, I don't think there's absolutely anything that I could have done differently, which would have mitigated the impact. I was already in a preferential position. I was a former banker. I don't have much of a budget constraints when I handle my household's organization. I mean, how many women can do that? So if it was incredibly hard for me, I had truckloads of friends that could give me all sorts of support. And still, it was incredibly strenuous to the point that I think this year, I practically came to the point of cracking because I was so destroyed. Um, I don't think anybody can do any better. It's not possible in these current conditions. So we should change it. So, you know, there's a couple of really interesting points in what you've said. So the first point, is that um, on the level of a society, how we organize ourselves, it is definitely a problem that this highly skilled group of people that women after childbirth are, because we're assuming you know, that they've had babies at some point in their career, they've already achieved something, or at least they've had education. Suddenly they have to take time out let's say two, three, five years, they have to take this time out because of the biology. And so that's a loss for us as a society, but at the same time, it's necessary. Before we go to other points, do you have any thoughts on how this should be organized? You know, how not to allow for, for this process to destroy value in the society? I have some ideas. I think, first of all, yes, you need to take time out. And, you know, we are talking about years, two, three, five, uh, whatever it is the number. Consider it a transformation. Don't consider it just you don't play the game anymore. Because, because this is what maternity does. It's an incredibly disruptive phase where you have to learn new things, but you're also teaching very valuable information and skills to the next generation. So that is for, for perhaps the most important thing. So society sees women and stay-at-home mother as some kind of lower skilled second-class citizens. But in reality, in that, especially in that phase of early of early years, you're training the most important asset we have in the world, humans, right? So it, it shouldn't be seen as a, as a secondary skills. You should actually train more women on how to do it. It's not obvious, right? Um, so I think let's not call it, uh, you just sit on the bench. Uh, your job has changed. In those five years, your job has changed. And I feel that as we have this talk now, I feel I am almost back to go back to the previous game. I have given the, to my kids in the earliest years a lot of my attention. And it's not that they're going to need, not need me for the next few years, but I can go back and do a little bit more of my profession relative to them, so to speak. Again, a lot of interesting thoughts, but uh, let me try not to get sidetracked here and go back to the first point, which is, so from what I hear from you, we do need to talk about maternity as not something that basically marks the point from which your career goes downhill because, you know, you're no longer an economist, you're, you're a mother now. We should probably be honest by saying that, you know, you are not at your full capacity, but that's okay because you are doing another very important job for the society. And 
more importantly, it's not permanent. It's just a phase in your life that prepares you for something else. You should be given opportunity to take time out. There's a whole number of issues around it, you know, how women should be financially supported and all that, but we're not going to go into this. But the point is that, you know, you become a mother and you should be able to see this time as a valuable time rather than as a time when you get downgraded to a second-class citizen. Yes. That, that, that's what I'm hearing, right? So, so this is an important, important point that probably deserves a, a separate podcast. But let's just say that, you know, we, we find ways of solving this. So what we are left with is a new mother being in a new phase of her life that is doing two things. One is, you know, incredibly important job of raising your child that eventually becomes an asset in the society, but also growing um, herself as, as an individual, as a person, as someone who eventually becomes a part of the working group in the society. Because the idea is that, you know, after a while you do get your sleep, your child is grown up enough and, and you want to go back to do what you love. So I wanted to talk to you about how you think this experience of last five years shaped you, how it, I mean, did it have any benefits for you as a professional? Do you think you, you can take some lessons from it? In five years down the line, will you come back with, you know, better, faster, stronger, or will you feel like you're starting from scratch? Uh, yes, no, definitely. I think, I think I have learned some very valuable professional skills, actually. So the first one is a method of organization. So because your your first problem is memory loss and nobody can function on anything on memory loss I had come across an incredible book that I recommend everybody to read you know mothers or otherwise uh, from Mary Kondo uh, the magical power of organizing it's Japanese method of organizing stuff I mean it's so incredible can, can uh, with you know, can I just explain yeah. to the listeners what it is? Because maybe not everyone came across Marie. Yeah. I mean, also, I have to admit, uh, the, context, the, the context that I um, heard of her was very different. So the idea is that she says, you know, whatever clutters your life, everything that you have in your life, you basically take each thing in your hands, you hold it very closely, and you try to feel if it gives you joy or not. If it gives you joy, mm -hmm. you keep it. And if it doesn't give you joy, you need to get rid of it and make room for other things. And, and obviously, whatever you keep, you, you organize very neatly to make your life easier. Now, I have to mention the context I heard it in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is, you know, you take your boyfriend, you hold him, and gives you <laughs> joy, give him. <laughs> Otherwise, yes, he, he has to go. But, you know. Anyway, so... <laughs> It's a very valid method that you can apply on multiple levels. That's the point. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But she, she also said something else, right? She says you put everything in theory, you're supposed to empty your house, put everything in front of you. And then you reorganize and there is only going to be one place and one place only for that kind of thing the case of boyfriends you only have one or supposedly a small number of them so that's not too hard but <laughs> on, on anything else that is you know digital files or or household stuff like hats or you know whatever sports equipment or anything else so you you need to force yourself to to only one place but why i'm saying this is because you know, we live in digital world, right? So creating digital files is incredibly easy, whether that is an email or a Word document with your notes or is an Excel because you're an economist. It takes half a second to create. And we don't really talk about how to organize that data because we are 
kind of implicitly told that Google will always find you, find it. So you can run a search on your computer, you will find it. Or that if you organize it, let's say an alphabet or by date of creation, it would be okay. But if you don't have memory, you learn that these methods don't work, actually. The same way it doesn't work to organize a house, uh, let's say by room or just because it looks nice. It has to be efficient. It has to be intuitive. It Information or, or stuff needs to be clustered because of the way you use it and by theme, okay? And it sounds like an obvious thing, but it really isn't, actually. Um, and it makes a difference if you have a small set of things and you have memory, it almost doesn't matter exactly how you organize them because your memory will help you retrace them. But if you don't have memory or you have such a high number of things that you cannot possibly see them all or memorize them all, then you need to have a very sophisticated way of organizing them. So this so is now, the first... Now that you have a um, um, limited resource in terms of your memory, you basically find ways of using it more efficiently. Uh, which is which is definitely a skill needed as you go back to your uh, professional life where, you know, we all face overload of information and data. Yes, but you actually go the next step. You don't have limited resources. You have zero resources. You don't remember. You can only trace stuff through intuition. So you need to have organized them in a way that it's intuitive. Excellent. And... So it works. It's the same thing if you're scaling up. If you work for me, all of a sudden, you need to find something in my database and I cannot be there every time. You need to be able to work independently and find stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's, it really is the extreme of limited resources. It's something that works no matter who uses it. Mm -hmm. right. So especially especially if you want to run an organization, you have to be able to organize things in a way that do not rely on any specific individual remembering things. They have, exactly. to, be, they have to be available to everyone. Okay, so, so that's, that's a very good example of, of, you know, of learning something, but maybe we could talk a little bit more about another thing that you said, which is you, know, you are raising a child, a human being, and we kind of tend to think that every mother is a great mother because, you know, that's the only one you have. <laughs> but in reality, you know, to do the job very well is not easy. And, and there are, you know, maybe there are books how to do it, but we all come to this with our own experiences. We copy what our parents did, uh, whether we do it intentionally or not, sometimes it's very beneficial sometimes, not necessarily so. What, what, what is it really that is needed to raise a child? And, and how is it similar, if at all, to uh, growing a team and leading people? Do you see any, any links there? Mm, yes. I, uh, everybody needs coherence, communications, and respect for, for their emotions. I mean, so one of, one of the things that both myself and my partner initially, uh, we kind of were curious about, it was exactly how do, you, how do you interact with this little creature that doesn't speak and doesn't know very much, right? How do you communicate relatively complex information for their age development. And, um, and incidentally, a client of my husband early on told him, you know what, don't just don't, don't worry about anything, okay? The kids understand real intentions. If you want something or you're really honest about something, they will pick it up and they will follow it. If you pretend, there is no way they will follow. And it's remarkably true, actually. They don't, 
you know, they don't speak for a long period of time. They, they're, you know, they learn anything. They don't even have real emotions for until the first year. They have instincts, but they don't have emotions. But like from minute one, they can pick up on your intentions. They can pick up your emotions and they react to that. And they can spot inconsistency between what you say and what you feel for yourself and for them at the speed of light. And in fact, this inconsistency is incredibly annoying, actually, because I think adults are not used to that level of strict monitoring, so to speak, right? I mean, there, we, there, there is nobody that will know you that well or that will be there at every minute of your life to kind of show a little bit when you're not being consistent. So I think you learn to have a certain coherence and, and honesty between your thoughts, your ideas and your actions, which of course for any business is very useful. I mean, because your clients can pick up inconsistencies between your message and your actions very quickly. And it doesn't matter what customer feedback they tell you because you know, we all lie to some extent, but um, when, when they say acts speak louder than words is, is really true. So I think, first of all, uh, you, you are forced to reckon with that, uh, which before you didn't have to do. You are forced to, well, you're not forced, but you, you're constantly immersed in emotions in a way that I think, especially if you're relatively senior professional, you're no longer used to, right? Because you're, you're used to a very sterile work environment. You've been told to withdraw your, your emotions, right? I mean, I mean, you know better than me in a trading floor, if you were to cry, I mean, you'd be absolutely downgraded to some kind of second tier professional. So you're, it, it's a very new environment. And I have learned that because there is this constant flow of, of emotions that it forced me to understand some of the, the issues that I had. And bringing them out, addressing them was kind of helpful in a way that I would have never, I, there is no way in heaven I would have given it that importance if I didn't have kids. I mean, it, it was not a necessity. I couldn't see why you would want to do it unless it was really a problem of serious mental health. So I think that was also an eye opener to me. And if I may add the last angle to this, the role of emotions has a real important ingredient for humans, professionals, really, not, not for humans. Because, I mean, we value emotions in, in, in all sorts of parts of life, but not so much in a professional dimension. We are all told that it's all about rationality and it's all about data and emotions is, is always devious, that, that is actually wrong. If mother nature gave us emotions, and very complex emotions, until today, it means they're necessary for survival. And indeed they are, because it's a way, it's an incredibly sophisticated way human brains organize information. That is actually what emotions are, if you look at it from an economist's point of view. It's a way that your body archives information because from the moment you come out, every second, every minute, you continue to absorb data in different ways, right? You have five senses, you need to store it somewhere and, and sometimes you decide not to store it. How are you going to organize it? Through emotions. So to me, it sounds like motherhood is like, emotional boot camp for leading and managing people <laughs> uh, it's, it's really interesting and I wonder if it's a one-way street or two-way street so let's think about it do you think that this experience that forced you to be more consistent lead by example be genuine 
do you think that this makes you a better leader in business? I know you were managing a team of people before, but so, so you know, you are very thoughtful about what you do, but do you think that there is an added value from your motherhood to this? Yes. Yes, although I think perhaps more than a manager, I am a better entrepreneur and a better economist. There is, there is a lot of emotional intelligence, so to speak, that you learn. But I think to some extent before I was relatively sensitive to that. But, but yes, I think the value of all the people around you, how you interact with them, how you listen to them, how you try to be, as I said, coherent. That is what really motherhood put an accent on. And, and we haven't really talked at all about my husband. And that's not because he was not important in this process, but just because we don't want to broaden the, the issue too much. But um, I think he, he really played a very active role in trying to keep my attention on the whole lot and and if i if i try to generalize it i think it really is your role in society that becomes more aware after you you become a mother when i think of my experience of learning about leadership which is obviously based on things not related to raising children and I, and I do feel there's a lot of value in learning about it. And, you know, all, all those leadership courses, they, 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 they seem like you hear an obvious thing, but actually I think they teach you a lot. But the essence of it, in my experience, is that at some point you really need to get on this page, not just know about it, but understand it and, and sort of live by it. You have to understand that this is not about you whether you're leading a small group of people whether you're building a large organization what you do is not about you it's not about your opinion how to do things it's about bringing out of other people the best thing they can offer for this project and it, it kind of sounds obvious because you know uh, if it's only about you then then you may just you know, do a service to people as, as, as a one-person company, right? And it will always be exactly what you want. But when you grow a business, especially a large organization that is supposed to create value to the economy, you have to take other people and make them do something that is more than what you would do on your own, right? So it's not like multiplication of you want to do. It's doing things that other people can add to the project and get leverage out of it. So it really puts other people in the center of what you do. When you plan your day as a mature, as a good leader, it's not about how do I make other people do what I want. It's about how do I get out of those people the, the most value for what we all want to achieve. So is this a one-way street? Like, you know, I, I, I sort of thought, is it just that you learn certain things from motherhood because you understood that, you know, the way you have to lead your child into certain actions is, is different from what you thought before? Or is it a two-way street, which is like, if you take your experience from, uh, from leading people in business, is it somehow translatable into, you know, raising your child to become a well-functioning member of the society? I mean, we, you know, what, what do you think of that? I think it's a very good point. I, I think you've actually said two important things. First of all, it's a it's a profound regime change, right? You you make this step, and there is no turning back. You either are trying to, as you said, organize your team in a way that you can deliver the best for the goal, or you just you know you shouldn't do it. Uh, so, so I think in that sense, it, there is a parallel to, to motherhood. Either you embrace that change is permanent and you will no longer be single with a very busy agenda. You actually have to operate in a completely different way or it's going to completely crush you because frustration is going gonna, is gonna to completely drive you mad. 
And I think, yes, definitely, it's a two-way street because there is a lot of value in listening, not just I mean, leading. You cannot lead if you don't listen for the feedback. You, you have an idea. You have something that you care very much about. And you're the one that puts the, the commitment in bringing it forward, and you have a point where you want to go, but then you also need to listen to, to the team. To make sure, you know, you continue to calibrate the path. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, you're the one that went to MIT learning all of this. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just wonder, this is genuinely a question. I just wonder if maybe all those leadership classes that, that we have schools, maybe they should include a chapter of, you know, on parenthood as well because most people taking those classes are or will become parents. I think as a parent, you are also a leader and maybe your experience with your child is actually a better experience to base your education on because you know that you can't fire your child, right? You cannot blame the child for, for not doing the job and getting another guy and saying, I'm a great leader. It was just the wrong guy in the, you know, doing the job, right? <laughs> you really have to solve the problem. Yeah, so that, that's something that I am going to think about. Uh, thank you for this. Okay, so getting back to our calamity story, clearly you're very thoughtful about all this process. You have reflected on it a lot. Do you think there are certain lessons that, that you want to share with, with the world as a, as a woman, as a mother, but also as an economist? Like what, what should we do differently? So as an economist, I think, I think there are really two things that, that I would like to pass on that I think are particularly important about what I've learned in this journey. The first one is about a certain sensitivity about information. Because, you know, I mean, we are talking at what is going to be a very, very long digital transformation, right? So digital transformation implies an enormous amount of more data available to everyone and very valuable data for commercial uh, purposes, and, and it will impact everyone's life. Um, so I think the first thing that I want to pass on is spend time thinking about it, invest skill and time in the way you organize and approach data. And that can be anything. I mean, if it is a company, then you need to organize your database. If you're just learning about facts in life, because you have so much more information at hand, it's so easy to get distracted. You need a more sophisticated way of screening the value of this information. You need to be aware about the difference between what is information that comes from a primary source that is independent versus information that has been elaborated, manipulated. Why is it manipulated? Could it have been mistranslated? So in today's world, handling data becomes a skill that we must learn from childhood actually, because otherwise you're going to get swamped. And then so easy to, to feel like you know what you're doing and in reality, you're only getting more and more confused. And, and of course, as by way of my profession, uh, don't be fooled that more data means better data, better decisions. More data only means that you're more likely to be confused and deceived if you don't have the right approach to handling it. In fact, good old Italian trick on how to slow down lawsuits is to overload you with information. It always works. It always will. Um, so, so that is my first point. And then my second point is, it is about, we, we do need to really think through as a society about maternity because it affects everyone. 
It affects the mothers. It affects, in one way or another, those that decide not to have children. It affects the parents. It affects the kids. So it is not just a choice of somebody. It has it has repercussions uh, for society on, on all sorts of levels. Demography, productivity, trust, burnout. Burnout of people is incredibly costly on all levels, emotionally, financially, and even financial valuations. You know, I mean, this is, this is very serious stuff. And because it just so happens that we get into the digital age with women being the biggest earners of higher skills, right? On the margin, we just generate sheer loads more of women graduates than men. So this, uh, this is really an important issue that we need to understand, address, and twist state policies in order to make them more effective, right? And, and one of the things that, for example, I've been thinking about, although it, it, at this stage is more idealistic than realistic, but you know, one of, one of the things that frustrates, as we said initially, is like you, as a new mother, you have some time where you're less than efficient, right? You're not at your best. You're, you're distracted, you're tired. So you need to take this time off. And nobody really wants to do it, right? Because the women feel that they're losing out. The employers feel that they have an administrative problem. The, the tax man feels that, you know, why should they fund maternity for five years? You know, it just sounds like a ridiculously long period of time. I think the best way to address it is to recognize that we all need more career breaks, actually. You know, that's a very interesting point. Let me just ask you this, because, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking all very true. But from the point of an employer, from the point of view of an employer, it's it's difficult because, you know, you allow some people to take a lot of time off. Other people get demoralized. Some people abuse this. So uh, just just a thought in my head. I wonder what you think about it. What if we were all men, women, we were all entitled to, let's say, five years time out for whatever reason? baby or burnout or whatever whatever it is what this would do is it would basically create a level playing field for women you would not be stigmatized for taking time out because other people can take time out as well yeah right? so so you know you are exactly the same kind of risk from an employer's point of view as a man or another woman that that is not planning to become a mother at the same time, we could also say we could all be entitled to work from home, let's say, three days a week. And if you can be effective doing it, it doesn't matter why you want to work from home two days a week, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what, what you gain is flexibility, something that you mentioned in the beginning that was really important for you. You, you didn't want to get back to have a job because you would lose your flexibility. Um, so what do you think? Do, do you think that maybe creating this level playing field would meaningfully change how we perceive motherhood and therefore uh, sort of prevent the loss in the society from, from losing this workforce? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it would be effective in both ways. One, it would address the problem of women without making it a women's issue. So it, it would be easier. And it would also address the issue of burnout in everyone because has, you know, the complexity in society goes up and all sorts of profession need to change constantly. And it doesn't matter. I mean, you don't have to be a, you know, a, a frontier scientist to feel burned out. Everybody has burned out for different reasons. And some of them may be a mixture of professional and normal life. But I think everybody in society at large would benefit from being able to take time off. I think the funding of maternity should not be so strictly related to the company the woman is working for. 
-hmm. because indeed it's 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 too much right i mean we live in a world of qe it's not, uh, it's not the economics of the company i mean you yeah. raise the child is public good right yeah exactly i mean we live in a world of qe so why can't you not fund it through the state and the state can fund it at qe interest rates i mean this is you know i think it to me is a no-brainer but i i would go a, a, a step further and actually say we should break we should break education as well early on. Because right now, if you think about it, what we're doing is we're forcing, with the fact of forcing people to stay in school at university level, so until 25. And that is a lot of time just doing theoretical stuff. Whereas mm -hmm. you, we underappreciate that already from the age of 15 onwards, people have enormous energy. And, and a lot of this is about how much energy you have to do stuff, right? So why cannot we allow people to begin to break some of their training already at the age of 15? Some of them may not be ready to study until 25 and then work. Some of them may just want to break, come back, break, come back. Ultimately, the more people find it natural to sometime take time off that is longer than two weeks, sometimes it's a year, six months, as you said, up to five years, the better it is for society, I think. Mm. Rafa, it's, it's been a great conversation. I feel that we are running out of time. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's super interesting. Lots of food for thought for me. So anyway, Is there anything else that you want to say that, that we haven't discussed so far? No, I want to absolutely thank you so much for allowing me to have this conversation, which I couldn't have really dared with anybody else. Really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really happy that we could do it. And, and I hope that uh, you, you can um, take it and, and do something useful with it. Let's hope so. Cool. <laughs> thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.